All right, uh, if you guys want to go ahead and flip to 1 Timothy in your Bibles. So we'll be reading uh, just a couple of verses out of uh, 1 Timothy. I'm going to read through partway into verse 9 this week, but I'm going to try to read the whole of the section from verse 1 all the way through to at least partway into verse 9, and then we will uh, get into the discussion. Let me just briefly open us in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, we ask for your wisdom as we open up your word. Uh, We know that we in our natural minds cannot study or comprehend your truth. Um, And so we ask for your grace, for your spirit to be upon us as we try to search the depths of your scriptures now. Uh, Would you apply to our hearts and to our lives that we would not just be hearers of the word, uh, but doers also. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the appointment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my truly begotten child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Just as I urged you to remain in Ephesus while I was traveling to Macedonia, so that you may command certain people not to teach differently, nor to pay attention to myths and never-ending genealogies which cause senseless debates rather than God's plan, which is known by faith. Now the goal of this command is love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from a genuine faith. This some have missed the mark and have turned aside to empty speech. They desire to be teachers of the law while not even knowing what they say nor the things that they affirm and strongly insist upon. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not given for the just, but for the lawless and for the insubordinate and for the ungodly and the profane, and the list goes on. But we will pause there for tonight. So these verses, 1 Timothy uh, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1, uh, we're still in the kind of introduction phase of the letter. Last week we covered... Uh, as best we could the first five verses, although there's admittedly much more that we could have gotten into and much more that I would still encourage your study in, in those texts. Uh, But this week we're going to put before our eyes the question, uh, what is the lawful use of the law that Paul here insists on? Or we might say it uh, without so much of a play on words, what is the use of the law? How might we as believers use the law faithfully? And what does Paul mean when he says using the law lawfully. So this is the question that we're going to put in our mind's eye. And I just want to briefly summarize the argument uh, of Paul thus far, uh, which is primarily that, uh, you'll remember as he addresses the letter, he's talking about the church as a family, and he addresses himself as the, let's say, spiritual father of some sorts of Timothy, right? He says, Paul, he is an apostle appointed by Christ Jesus, and his truly begotten child, or his true son, his genuine child, is Timothy, So if he is appointed by Christ and he truly begets Timothy, then Timothy is, let's say, in the lineage or the authority of Christ as well. And now, being in the authority of Christ or being in that vein, Paul is going to turn and he's going to then say, because you have this charge, this duty, this responsibility, this appointment, uh, you have to do certain things, Timothy. You can't just uh, lay around and, and do whatever and be a people pleaser. You have to do certain things. And last week we said the primary job description that Timothy is given uh, is given there in verse 3. I urge you uh, that you may command other people not to teach differently 
or some of your translations might say falsely or false doctrine. Uh, don't be false teachers, right? Uh, Paul literally invents a word. He literally says, teaching other than what I have taught. So people who teach differently than what I have taught, you are to urge them not to do that kind of thing. But false teaching, as Paul asserted last week, doesn't just come in the flavor of con contrasting with true teaching. False teaching can also dilute true teaching by insisting on non-central things as central things and decentralizing the important things, right? This is what he says uh, when he talks about endless myths or genealogies which lead to, well, some would say either contentious disputes or vain speculation. The point being, it doesn't lead you to edifying you. It doesn't grow you up in the faith. It doesn't build you up. Uh, it just distracts you at best. And at worst, it's gonna cause some kind of dispute among you. His point, that is different teaching just as much as going to Paul and saying the gospel is false would be false teaching, right? So there's two kinds of false teaching that Paul is addressing here. And then if I might summarize the argument with one more, let's say, bit, uh, it is that Paul uh, would encourage then Timothy that the goal of his ministry is not that kind of vain speculation, but as he says there uh, in verse five, it is, uh, it is love. The goal of his ministry is love, which is rooted in uh, nothing else than pure or genuine faith, right? This is what his goal is. So the goal of Paul uh, is to build up Timothy as, let's say, someone who embodies love. And the question is, well, how does he embody love? It has to be from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a genuine faith. This is the true things that spring up and, and lead to the love, which is the goal of Paul's ministry. Now, uh, we might turn and ask the question, why does Paul need to insist on, on all of these things? Uh, and the answer might seem obvious, but the point is, uh, it's because that's not happening. <laughs> The point is that on the ground, people are not teaching things that build up people in love uh, or, in, or in this kind of goal. And he, he actually says there in verse 6, uh, some have missed the mark. They've, uh, he says the aim of our charge is love. And now he's going to say, verse 6, some have missed the mark. Uh, they've, they've, they're off target. They're, they're not going towards the goal, Timothy, that you're supposed to be running after. Now, how have they missed the mark? Uh, verse 6, they have turned aside from empty speech. Uh, and desiring to be teachers of the law, they don't even know what the law says or things which they assert confidently about what the law says. So their problem isn't just that they're off target and quiet about it. Their problem is they're off target and they're very talkative. They have lots of opinions and they're talking a lot about their wrong opinions, their off target opinions. Uh, James would say, right, not all of you should aspire to be teachers because the one who teaches will be judged more harshly. The point is, uh, false teachers, uh, particularly those who have novel ideas, um, they're typically not silent, which is typically where the problem comes in. Uh, when you believe something falsely in your own mind, let's say you hold a false doctrine, you probably have at some point in your life as a believer held a false belief. Okay? If you haven't, uh, you haven't looked hard enough. Uh, if you've ever gone through your old journals, if you keep journals as a, as a Christian or keep notes about sermon notes you've listened to in the past and your reflections on them, uh, you might be shocked about some of the things you used to believe or think about faith. And that's just because that's part of maturing in the faith. You, you weed out bad teaching and you grow into mature teaching. It's kind of the point of being a believer, right? Now suppose uh, you hold that, that false teaching within yourself. Well, if it's just you who believes that, you don't teach that to anyone else, that's okay. You're kind of keeping it contained and then the spirit can work and edify you and, and build you up in that. And then, and then you just have yourself to deal with and then once it's dealt with in you, it's good, it's contained. But suppose you had a false teaching 
that you didn't know was a false teaching or possibly you didn't know was grounded in scripture, but you had this speculation or want that it was true. And then you taught that to, let's say, 20 other people or 40 other people. And then at some point later, you become convinced that, oh, this was actually a false teaching. Well, now you have a problem because you didn't just believe that yourself. You actually propagated that forward to other people. And this is the problem that's happening in the church. It's not just that these people believe falsely. It's that they believe falsely and assert confidently false belief, the things that they uh, aren't even sure about. Right? So this is, this is the aim of, of what Paul is getting after here. Now, I, I need to make a quick correction before I, I move on. Last week, I think I said something like from verse 3 to verse 11 is one long sentence in Greek. Uh, that's actually not quite true. It's verse 8 through verse 11 is one long sentence that's complex and, and very layered. And that's where kind of Paul gets into the thrust of his argument. So I spoke in errant uh, in error last week. It's not verse 3 to verse 11, just verse 8 to verse 11 is one run-on sentence. And we're going to get a little bit, at least into the, the pinnacle of this sentence this week. Uh, but you, I want you to understand Paul's argument before we get into his, let's say, assertion or his thrust of his argument. So he's got false teachers on the ground. Uh, he's got people who are confidently asserting things that they don't even know themselves to be true. And unlike Paul, who is appointed as an apostle by Christ Jesus in verse 1, uh, right? He's called according to the appointment of Christ, according to the appointment of God. Uh, in verse 7, you have people who themselves desire to be law teachers. So it's, they're not appointed by God to be teachers of law. They're not appointed by other ministers to be teachers of law. They have just come to their own senses and concluded, I must be a teacher of the law. So I don't need to get an appointment by anybody else. I don't need anyone to confirm that this is a true teaching. Uh, this is someone who just woke up one day and said, I have something new and I'm going to teach the church. I don't care if God called me. I don't care if an apostle appointed me. I'm just going to go do my own thing. Now, this is dangerous. And the best of, of churches and the best of denominations will guard who they allow to teach. And this is, this is something that most churches and most denominations would or should do. Uh, there'll be elders who sift the teaching of the people within those churches. And if you're not appointed or approved by the, the official teaching of that denomination or that church, you shouldn't be allowed to teach in that church. Uh, so now this is a big problem today in the world because uh, we have anyone with a phone and internet access can teach whatever they want. And that's a big problem for orthodox faith because as long as you get enough people saying whatever they want anywhere, uh, you get this kind of critical mass theology. Well, then you've got problems on your hands because it's not sound or it could be unsound. You just don't know. You have no way of telling. This is kind of what's happening here. There's people who desire themselves to be teachers of the law. Uh, no one's confirmed them or appointed them. They've just kind of sprung it up in themselves. And then in verse 7, uh, but they don't know what they say or the things they affirm. So the law that they want to teach, Paul's saying they don't know it, they don't get it, and they assert confidently even though they don't know it and they don't get it. Big problems, right? Now Paul is going to turn his argument in verse 8, and he's going to say, here's true teaching about the law. Okay, this is something that happens all the time in the history of the church. Paul's exemplifying it here. Uh, but we're, we can think of a couple of examples of this. Uh, true doctrine usually doesn't need to be explicitly stated until false doctrine has risen up and challenged true teaching. So you see this uh, in the history of the church, first in about the year 300 or so AD, uh, where the church is now debating whether Christ was fully God or not. Was he truly God or was he not truly God? Now, if you're looking from a historical perspective, you could conclude, oh, the church only decided that Jesus was truly God in the third century. Or 
uh, you could say the church only had to defend that he was truly God in the third century because that's the first time someone sprung up and said, I don't think he was truly God. And so then true teaching needs to be asserted in place of false teaching. Uh, you might think of our own day today where the church is having to define things like human sexuality and marriage, which it never has really had to define in the history of the church. And it's not that the church is now inventing a doctrine that it didn't hold to before, but the church is having to be explicit and very detailed about what it believes because, well, people are jumping up and saying all kinds of things about marriage and what it is or isn't. So the church is having to be explicit about these kinds of things. So true teaching usually comes in the wake of false teachings being asserted. This is what Paul's doing here. So there's people who pretend to be law teachers. They don't know what they're talking about. Timothy, let me tell you about the law. Verse eight, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now that's a play on words. You catch it in the English. The law is good if you use it lawfully. Or we might say something is beautiful uh, if you use it beautifully, right? It's just like, it's, it's kind of assuming the premise, right? But Paul is saying is the law is a good thing if you use it according to its own purpose or according to its own usage. Or the law is good if you use it lawfully. So law is good if you use it in, according to how it's supposed to be used, right? Uh, we might say that uh, a tool, any tool that you use in a toolkit, is only as good as you using it within the range that it was intended to be used for. If you use it for something it's not supposed to be used for, well, you might conclude this is a, a bad tool, or you could say I'm using it inappropriately. The law is good if you use it according to its design, according to its usage. So now Paul is going to have to defend the usage of the law, and he's going to do that, by the way, throughout 1 Timothy. But allow me to summarize a little bit of what the law is used for, what it can be used for. So historically, Christians would say the law could be used in a number of ways. The first one is called uh, the pedagogical use of the law. All that means is the law teaches us. The law teaches us about sin. The law teaches us about our own sin. The law teaches us about our need for a savior. And the law teaches us about how short we fall and about how gracious God is to save us. So it tutors us. It tutors us and disciplines us so that we might grow into maturity and recognize our need for salvation and cry out to God for mercy. So the law is a teacher or a tutor or a pedagogue. It, it trains us. It disciplines us. That's one use of the law. Paul, Paul's going to uh, elaborate on this in 1 Timothy. Second use of the law, uh, we might say, is the uh, political or the societal use of the law. Uh, now, this just means that the law is used to restrain evildoers from doing evil. Uh, we know, as, as a society, not everyone agrees with every law that's on the books in America, right? But we don't need people to agree with every law that's on the books. The point is they're on the books to prevent evildoers from doing evil. So you might have someone who wants to commit murder, who desires to commit murder from their heart, but who knows that the law says that's illegal, and if you do this, there are certain punishments that are associated with it. And knowing that it's illegal and that there's punishments associated with it and there's, there's a repercussions if you violate the law, in some sense, it can act as a restraint on people to not commit those sins. Uh, you might think about when you were growing up and learning how to drive a car, possibly, and what do you learn in driver's education but the rules of the road, the law? You learn about speed limits, about when it's legal to make turns, when you have to stop, when you can go. You learn about all these things because if you violate them, you get tickets and it's illegal, but also you learn about all those rules because they teach you how to drive. <laughs> so they're not just there to punish you, they're there also to instruct you on good driving. So the law is a teacher, but it also restrains your wrongdoing. Uh, and then we might say the last use of the law uh, is what, it, what is called the, the normative or the Christian use of the law, which means it teaches believers not only of their need for a savior, but also how they ought to live because of God's grace to them. 
So in the spirit, Christians are called to be obedient to the words of God. They're to love God's law, to delight in it, and to follow after it. So we are to, as Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And all the New Testament writers use the law in the Old Testament in some sense as something that is informative for Christian life. So as Christians, the law doesn't just tell us that we needed a savior. It also helps us to instruct on, well, what is sinful and what is not sinful? What does God delight in? What does he not delight in? What does God call of me to do? And what does God reject or what does God despise? Or you think about the book of Proverbs. It tells us all kinds of wisdom about the kinds of things God loves and the kinds of things God hates. And we wouldn't know those kinds of things maybe if, uh, if they weren't recorded for us in that way. The law, the Old Testament, is, is useful for us in that sense. Now, when Paul uses the term law here, he, I'm not just asserting that he's talking about the whole Old Testament. Um, in Jewish rabbinical thought, the law always is kind of a shorthand for the Old Testament. But as Paul is going to make clear in verse 9 and 10, uh, he's actually going to enumerate the Mosaic laws. So he's going to talk about the law in terms of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and he's going to do that in shorthand. We'll look deeper into that uh, next week. Um, but you can actually see it a little bit uh, just in verse 9. Uh, you'll see it at the end there where he talks about uh, the lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, the profane, uh, those who slay or strike father and mother, and those who murder or those who are manslayers. So he's, he's just going through, in some sense, the first, well, you can start to see some of that pattern, ungodly, profane, those who strike father and mother, this is part of, the, part of the Ten Commandments there. And then those who murder, right, that's part of the Ten Commandments. So he's just going to continue to enumerate on those Ten Commandments as we go deeper uh, in the coming weeks. But the point is, Paul's reference to the law is, is drawing straight, straight from Moses, straight from the Old Testament. And he's saying this law is, use, is good if you use it lawfully. So he's saying the Old Testament law has use for Timothy, for the church in Ephesus, if you use it right. Now... Uh, he's going to go on kind of to conclude his argument, at least uh, for this week. Uh, we're going to see the conclusion here in verse 9. Uh, he says that the law is not given for the just, but for the lawless. Now here we need to make a careful distinction. Okay? When Paul here says the law is not given for the just, but for the lawless, part of what he's talking about is the, the law is, is given primarily for restraint for sinners. Okay? This is one of the main uses of the law. He's not saying uh, that if you are just, you have no need of the law. Uh, because the very thing that considers you just or righteous would be the law itself that kind of vindicates that. Now, he's also not talking about just in terms of perfect righteousness before God. Uh, we know this because in scripture elsewhere, the term righteous or just is not always used to be a, a moral declaration on your status before God. Often it is. Christians, we often, especially as Protestant Christians, every time we see the word just in scripture, we want to say, Justified by grace and faith through Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, that's true. But not every time the word just shows up does it mean those things. In this case, Paul is, is contrasting those who are obedient to the law and who, in terms of moral outworking, obey the law, those who are just, innocent under the law, uh, as opposed to those who are lawless or active breakers of the law. So we might say that uh, you can be in Christ and you can be just under the law, not in the sense that you're meriting righteousness, but you're obedient to it. You're a a good Christian, you're, you love God's law, you're obedient to it. That would be the just. He's saying the law is primarily not given for those people because they have the Holy Spirit which guides them and, and convicts them of sin. The law is given so that the people who are lawless can wake up from their sin. Okay? And now the reason Paul's kind of is calling balls and strikes like this gives us a little bit of an indication of what the false teachers are asserting. If Paul has to say the law is useful, 
Well, we can assume that the false teachers are asserting things like the law is not useful. If he's saying the law is for all people, especially the lawless, we can assume that the, the false teachers are saying something like, well, the law is defunct. It's done away with in Christ, right? We don't need the law anymore. Uh, now, the text doesn't say that, but Paul is arguing in the opposite direction, which means the rebuttal that he's arguing against is probably someone who's saying the law is no longer useful or the law can be done away with. Now, in the rest of his letter in 1 Timothy, uh, part of his argument about what a healthy church is going to look like is this assertion uh, that the law, in some sense or another, can inform us on how we live in a healthy church. Uh, what kind of doctrine we teach, uh, what kind of morality we interact with with one another, how we treat one another. All, the law teaches us all these things, and Paul just is exegeting that as he's going through the rest of 1 Timothy. So, uh, as Christians today, uh, we would say uh, Paul is post-ascension, post post-resurrection. He's got the teaching of Christ, and he's saying the law is useful. I think there's a lot for us to learn in that because, especially as Protestant Christians, uh, we are very, very wary of the law. We look at the Old Testament law and we think, good for them, not for me. And there is some truth in the sense that not every law is binding in the exact same way. But the, but the point is the law is still useful for us as, as Protestants. The, the law is still useful for us as believers in Christ because Christ came and upheld the law and fulfilled it. And we would say, if we're going to follow after him, we're not going to do anything he didn't do in that sense. We're going we're gonna to follow after him and, and love the law just like he loved the law and be obedient to the law as he was obedient to the law. So, so far as we are able by God's grace. That should be our heart posture, I think. That's part of what Paul is calling Timothy to here. Now, we're going to see how this works out in the rest of 1 Timothy. Um, but part of what we can see, at least thus far, is, is Paul has asserted uh, kind of these speculative teachings. And then he's going to go to the central teaching of, let's say, the use of the law. We might say this is one example of Paul reprioritizing something that has been deprioritized in the teaching of these speculative false teachers. So them teaching differently goes something like dismissal of the law and speculation about myths and genealogies and kind of all kinds of speculative things. And here Paul comes in and he's saying he's going to teach soundly. And here he goes and he says the law is useful. You ought to use it lawfully. And so the law in some sense is a part of a backbone of Paul's assertion of what is healthy for a church. This is a central teaching. The church needs to get the law right if it is to be healthy. Uh, away with the speculations and the myths and all those kinds of uh, strange thoughts and onto a central thing like how useful the law is for the church. So the law is good, and I think we need to, as, as believers, remember that. Uh, you can think about uh, the example of the rules of the road, which I gave earlier. Uh, but you can also think about so many other scenarios in life where the law is good. It's a good thing, and it provides benefit to those who are aware of it. Um, some of you might be aware, not of, let's say, legal laws, uh, but some of you in the world of medicine have to follow certain procedures in, in your practice. You have to do certain rules that are put on you. Um, this is sometimes called sterile technique in an operating room, but in any case, there's always these kinds of checklists you have to follow. And the point is, if you think about the checklist or the rule book as something that is a restraint upon you in your, in your practice of medicine, you're going to get into some very strange places because the rules exist to actually help you be a better service to your patients and to the people you're helping. If you were a surgeon and you were scrubbing in for a surgery and you neglected all, all use of the rules, you forgot sterile technique, you didn't really wash as you should have under your fingernails and all that, you go in, you go break sterile immediately, and then you go and operate on a patient, you might be free in yourself, but you're putting someone else at risk by doing that kind of thing. The law is, is in some sense a benefit 
to the person, both the person who is observing the law and the person who is on the receiving end of the one observing the law. Uh, so it is uh, with the law of Christ. It's, it's a benefit, not just for the people who practice it, but for those who actually observe it being practiced. We might, we might say this is a testimony of the church to the world. Uh, the church's testimony is at its strongest when what it proclaims from the pulpit is also something it lives out in its life. So there's no worse testimony for the church than when a pastor gets up on a Sunday, preaches faithfully the word of God, that's, all, that's good. But then suppose the people who are under that preaching uh, go out and they drink themselves drunk and they sleep around and they commit adultery and they watch pornography and they do all these kinds of things that are outside of the boundaries of God's law. Well, we would say this is a bad testimony to the world. If the world is watching the lives of these people, they would rightly conclude no one's taking this seriously. No one believes this stuff. So in some sense, the law is not only for us good, it sanctifies us, but it's also a witness to the world. If we took God's word seriously and lived according to it, it would be a strong testimony to the world around us that our faith is sure, is true, is right, and we believe it as such. So in some sense, I think there's a strong rebuke for us there in the modern church. Now, there's much more in these verses to discuss. I will save most of that for our discussion time, though, and I would just like to close quickly with a word of prayer and get us on to that. Father, you are a gracious God. Uh, we know your law is is good, it is lovely, it is right. And Lord, we pray for your grace that we would be able to use it in its proper form, uh, that we would be submissive to your word, uh, we would be students of it, uh, we would dedicate our lives to loving your law, as the Psalms say. And Lord, we would be edified by that, encouraged by it, and strengthened by it, so we may live lives that the world watching can see and be jealous of and want the, the, the relationship that we walk in with you. We pray that this would not just be something that builds us up, but also something that is a testimony to the world. And we pray that it would start not with somebody else around us or with our neighbor, but it would start with us, Lord, that we would be doers of your word and lovers of your law. We pray this in your name. Amen.